audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. It was several months ago uh, that I got the privilege of, uh, similar to, to JB, getting to go on a trip um, this week. I was able to go on one up into north-central Nebraska. Met up there, as many of you know, with, with several, about, about eight or nine ministers from around the country. We got to go deer hunting while we were up there. We did a lot of different things there in north-central Nebraska. One of the things we did on a regular basis each day was worship. Um, and um, it was interesting to see these, these eight or nine men up there singing without any instrumental accompaniment whatsoever besides something maybe on a phone. And it was, it was not, if we're going to talk just about quality of singing ability, I'm not going to say it ranks up there real high, but if you're going to talk about the sincerity involved um, then it ranked pretty high. And to see, to see these men, we sang that one of the songs we sang today, The Goodness of God. And, and to see uh, what that did within some of these, these men was moving to me. And um, as they sang with, with tears in their eyes. And that came from something. It came from, it came from hearts that understand the place of gratitude when it comes to our relationship with God. Um, guys, usually we don't put this right at the beginning of a message. It's not the way we operate. And this does not mean that you can check out the rest of the time this morning, okay? But there is something we need to get, and we're going to dance all around this today. And I want you to hear this. It's, it's, it's this. Faith, okay? Faith, our faith in God is strongest when it is firmly grounded in gratitude, and having a thankful heart. There is such a powerful connection between thankfulness and faith, brothers and sisters. And we're going to see that spelled out a little bit today as we look at this passage of Scripture. We're jumping right in the middle of a long historical account. It's not a story. It's an account. It did happen. On Wednesday nights, we, um, I, I meet, get, get to meet. I love it. Wednesday night, I just love Wednesday nights. It's a privilege to be able to, to meet with some people here in this room. And we're working our way right now through the book of 1 Corinthians. And when we got to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we get to a portion of, of the Apostle Paul teaching the church, writing to the church in Corinth, telling them to remember the, the examples, whether good or bad. In this case, it wasn't the best. It was kind of the bad examples of the fathers from the Old Testament. Um, when we join the scene, that's kind of what my mind thinking about this passage of Scripture for today. And as I said, when he brings that up in 1 Corinthians 10, he's bringing up the bad examples of some of those, those fathers back then. And when we join the scene, today's passage of Scripture, those fathers are dead. Okay? An entire generation who was destined to go to the promised land messed up royally and they did not to get to go to the promised land. They were brought out of Egypt with the intention of going to the promised land. They did not get to go because of their stubbornness and their disobedience of God. So they're dead now. And their children, an entire another generation, it is their kiddos who will inherit the promised land. Other things have taken place at this time. Moses himself wasn't allowed to go in the promised land. He led Israel to the doorstep, but he himself was not allowed to enter. So Moses has died, had, the, had probably the most unusual funeral you'll ever see, because nobody saw it. God was the only participant in Moses' funeral. I mean, can you imagine being buried by God? That, that's what it says. He was buried by 
God. So, uh, so that has taken place. And his young protege, who's not that young anymore, a guy named Joshua, took over for Moses. Now, the entire nation has just recently crossed the Jordan. And there's a big deal with that. Because it is the, the time of harvest. And in the time of harvest, in that time, in that day, the Jordan River would be outside its blanks. It was flood stage. It was the rainy season. And it was this way each and every year. So you've got the Jordan River, which is normally quite capable of being crossed. It is uncrossable at this time. Well, they crossed it. This is a big deal because God showed the nation of Israel the way in which he was with Moses. He's going to do the same thing with Joshua. And God stopped the waters of the Jordan River. And does this just sound familiar? The nation of Israel walked across on dry land. Sounds a little bit like a Red Sea thing going on here, okay? So they do this, they cross. Now we're talking about a large number of people. We're talking about several hundred thousand soldiers with their families. So this will take a while for this to take place. God, he gives some instructions to Mo, or to, jo, careful, to Joshua about this statement. He says, you take 12 stones right out of the riverbed and you go, when you get across the river, go to your camp and you set up those stones as a memorial so that your children and your children's children remember how God let you and brought you across this river and what is going to happen next is going to amaze you. So, now, what has to happen first, though, wasn't too amazing. Um, I told you that, that, that moms and dads weren't, weren't the greatest there in the wilderness, those who are dead now. Um, they went an entire generation, the generation of their children, they didn't circumcise any of their sons. Okay, It's kind of a big deal. They were supposed to do that. They did not do it. So now you've got these grown men who are soldiers having to be circumcised. This should have been done when they were babies, all right? And I'm sure they're thinking, Dad, Mom, are you serious? Now, I'm not going to go into details about circumcision here. If any of you kids want to talk about it, talk to Mom and Dad about it after the service. They'll fill you in on everything what that's about, okay? Um, but I will tell you this, that takes place to a 25-year-old man. You're not doing anything for a while, okay? So it tells us that after this, they rested for a period of time. Now, before the Jordan was crossed, before any of this happened, you had two spies that went out. They crossed the Jordan. They went and they spied out the first place they came to on the other side of the Jordan. It was a town, city, town, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, by the name of Jericho. Now the people of Canaan, the bunch of ites, Hivites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and all the other ites with them, okay, they had heard about Israel. They had heard about what the, the, the God of the Israelites had done for them, brought Egypt, world power, to its knees, brought them across the Red Sea, closed the Red Sea over the, or over the army of Pharaoh behind them. They had heard about this God who led his people at daytime by a pillar of cloud and by night a pillar of fire. They'd heard about all these things, and guess what, folks? They were terrified, absolutely terrified of these people who now have crossed the Jordan. Before they crossed the Jordan, the king, he'd be more of a mayor because we're going to find out Jericho isn't a huge place, but he hears that these two spies are within the walls of his town, within the walls of his city. He's trying to find them. He hears that they're over there with Rahab. But I'm a little bit more about her in a second. I'm going to leave it to you for, for this. She saved them. She hid them. She told the king, told the mayor, whatever. She told them, they're not here. They left a long time ago, and they went that way, all right? 
So she did all of this. They escape. They go back to Joshua. And what they tell Joshua is this. They say, the courage of the people of Canaan has, the Bible says it literally, melted away. They have none left. So all of this being said and done, here is the question. How is this conquest going to begin? And by the end of the first battle, will the nation of Israel be thankful? I guess the first thing that comes to mind when we look to Joshua chapter 6 is this. Why in the world is Joshua so confident going into all of this? Um, Let me tell you something. Many of you know, I mention it occasionally, that, that I am a part of an almost ex- extinct people group. Um, I am a KU football fan. I am, all right? And I'm going to tell you something. I've got a little bit of hope for next year. I, I, read about, I read about the KU football program on sportsillustrated.com. Can you believe that? The KU, not just saying they're the worst, because that's what pretty much has been said for the last two decade and a half, like the worst in all Division I football. I mean, they are listed as one of the programs on a rise. They're on the rise, and I'm like, oh. But, but guys, the word confident is not even in the vocabulary of a KU football fan. It's not there. It's, it, we don't even know what that word means, all right? Let's think for a moment about Joshua. Look at verse 1. Chapter 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. If you knew Jericho and you knew this is what's going on with Jericho, you would know that you are dealing with here an impossible situation when it came to penetrating that fortress. The spies of 40 years or so ago, the first group of spies that went into the promised land, and came back with not a very good report, besides Caleb and Joshua, they brought up the walls of the cities like Jericho, saying, these cities, they are fortified. We cannot, we can't defeat these people. Jericho, we just got to make sure our minds are in the right place to this. Jericho was not some big, huge metropolis. Understand? From, from the ruins or the, what's left of Jericho, they got really, in, in the late 1980s, the beginning of the 1990s, they, they found out a lot more about Jericho through archaeological digs. And what they found, the things they found out is this, all of it would have, would have fit within three city blocks. So, so understand, we're not talking about this huge, huge place. But the thing about it that made it so intimidating, as I said, was its walls. This is, this is, this is Bible dictionary stuff, so... So stick with me here, all right? Jericho had two walls. The first was an outer wall set up on a dirt embankment with a stone retaining wall approximately 15 feet high. This was topped by a mud brick wall approximately 25 feet high. Houses were built right next to this outer wall. At the top of the mound was another mud brick wall of similar size. All told, Jericho looked like a small but impenetrable fortress. That's what it looked like. Something else about Israel. They are not only somewhat unfamiliar with warfare to begin with. This is, a, this is a generation that hasn't experienced a lot. They have some, but not a lot. They knew nothing about siege warfare. 
Siege warfare is this, you starve them out. Okay, you, you, can't, you can't beat the walls, so you starve them out. That is siege warfare. Keep something in mind. What was going on while the Jordan River was overflowing its banks? What did I tell you it was? The time of what? Harvest. It was the time of harvest. Not only that, Jericho had a large spring within the city walls. Archaeologists have suggested that with the grain stores and the ample supply of water that Jericho could have withstood a siege for up to two years. Two years. Okay? So we're going to get across the Jordan River and we're going to set for two years to conquer the very first place we come to. This is where God chose the conquest to begin? The end of chapter 5, we find something really interesting happening. Um, Joshua, if, if you look closely at what's taking place, he's standing outside of Jericho. Now, I imagine he's far enough away that he's not going to get threaded with an arrow, okay? But he's, he's standing there. What do you think he's looking at? He's looking at the walls, thinking, okay, God's got our back. How is this going to happen, though? <laughs> About that time, a guy shows up with a drawn sword. Joshua asked him the question, are you for us or are you for the Lord? And the response he got, I'm sure he never, ever forgot. It wasn't a man, it was an angel. And it wasn't any angel, it was the captain of the armies of the Lord. Joshua immediately hits the ground, all right? His face is on the ground and he is told, okay, you're on holy ground here. Take off your shoes and open up your ears, open up your mind. Would Joshua have any reason to be confident looking at those walls? I would say yes. Look what happens in verse 2. And looky here, this isn't just an angel of the Lord at this point. This is the Lord speaking to Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You see, Joshua had the luxury of knowing the outcome of the battle before the first arrow even flies. And he has every reason to be confident. So now, God tells Joshua, the battle is already won. And then he tells him, now for the plan. Now, this wasn't much of a battle plan conference here, you know. This pretty much was Joshua not saying a word and God speaking. You know, wouldn't meetings go much, much quicker if one person spoke and everybody else listened? You know, but who are you going to choose who to speak? When God's a part of the meeting, he's the one who speaks, okay? So it's not much of a meeting. It's just Joshua listening and hearing the plan. And you talk about a plan. What a plan. And I'm sure maybe in the back of the mind, if not Joshua, to some he's going to relate the plan to, it's going to be something like, we're going to do what? What are we going to do here? Okay, I already told you I'm a KU football fan. I don't know if you know this, but the 2022 schedule for Division I football teams have been laid out there. And I didn't know if you know this or not, but on September 3rd, KU was supposed to play Tennessee Tech, that giant of, of a school, Tennessee Tech. Well, Tennessee Tech, um, they, 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 they backed out because they were, they were afraid, KU. So, so I, I read this just today, Jason. I just read this today. So they backed out, but KU, KU, thinking on their feet, landing on their feet, they signed a new opponent, 
And on September 3rd, the Crimson Tide of Alabama are going to come to Lawrence to, um, to, play, to, play K, to play KU. What are you laughing at? I'm telling you the truth here. All right. So this is, this is the game plan. I've got an inside privy for the game plan that day. So listen to me very closely. This is a little unusual. Okay? Instead of warming up like normal, the team... The coaches, the trainers, and the band are going to march around the field with Baby J leading them. Okay? Now, Baby J, it's not a rapper. Baby J is the little Jayhawk that runs around. Now, I don't know. There might be a rapper named Baby J out there somewhere, but I'm talking about Baby J, Jayhawk, leading them. Okay. Listen closely. After seven laps, all the defensive backs and wide receivers are going to whistle Sweet Home Alabama. Everybody got that? After they do this, all of the linemen, because linemen can't whistle, I guess, they are going to eat three boiled eggs. Just three, not two, not four, just three. Then the running backs and the wide receivers are going to sing Home on the Range. And then everybody else of the team is going to yell the rock chalk chant. After all this takes place, Every single Alabama football player who's over 260 pounds and runs a sub 4.8 second 40, which is basically their whole team. You ever seen Alabama? All right. They are going to fall to the ground paralyzed for the next two and a half hours. Now, I realize, I realize that a game lasts longer than two and a half hours, so I'm hoping that in that amount of time, okay, you can build up enough of a lead that in the fourth quarter that Alabama will not, I, I still don't know if they can win it. But that's the game, that's the game plan, so mark down September 3rd. You're not going to want to miss it. Okay, now if that sounds unlikely to you, look at what the Lord tells Joshua. Have you, have you heard about this? Verse 3. The Lord speaking. He says, you shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. The people will go up every man straight ahead. Okay, Joshua has seen enough of the Lord at work to know better than to question him. I'm still wondering what's going on in the back of his mind, but he immediately goes to the army. Let's see what can, let's continue on, verse six. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. Okay. I can just see Israel's warriors. They, they have been waiting for this day. And they are eagerly awaiting the instructions from Joshua of how they are going to attack Jericho. And I know what they're thinking. Build, okay, build some ladders, okay? Maybe put together a battering ram. You know, a really, really big one with some of those cedars of Lebanon. That's what we're going to do. Hey, tell you what, maybe, maybe we're going to build a catapult. After all, the Old Testament talks about some of those battle engines, okay? Um, 
And, and then they hear the plan. And they, we're going to do what? We're going to march around the city for six days? We're not even allowed to talk. We can't even, we can't even talk trash to the people in there, you know, because that's what you do before the battle. Perhaps I'm mistaking, though. These, these, this was a new generation. This was not the fathers and mothers who had messed up and grumbled against God time and again. These people had seen some incredible acts of God, but they had also seen what happens when you take the word of the Lord for granted. So they keep their mouths shut, and guess what? The battle begins. Let's read it. Verse 8. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, Shout, then you will shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Day one ends. Let's continue on. Verse 12. Now Joshua rose early in the morning. Now the priest took up the ark of the Lord, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. They went on continually. They blew the trumpets and the armed men went before them. And the rear guard came up after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day, and they marched around the city once and returned to camp. Day two ends. And then at the end of verse 14, we get a big fast forward. Okay, this is the point in the movie where it's like, okay, this is going to get a little redundant. So we're going to put a fast forward here. So it says this, they did so for six days. Okay. So we know from what we've just read, what we've been told, what's happening outside the walls of Jericho. For a moment, think about what's going on inside the walls of Jericho. Six days of trumpets. Okay, we've already said Jericho is not this huge city. But we're talking about an army exceeding several hundred thousand soldiers. It's going to take a while to have this army march around the walls of this town. I would imagine that the, that the first of this procession would begin camp long before the end of the procession. And the whole time this is going on, not a peep from any of the army. They don't say a word. They just march. So for six days, not a word, no sound at all except for the marching of feet on the ground and the continuing blasting of those dang trumpets. Six days of it. What would that do to your nerve? (laughs) Your nerve that was already on shaky ground. You know something? The Persian Empire 
And we, we read about them a little bit later on in Old Testament history. The Persian Empire of the 5th, 6th century BC, their soldiers, they crafted their arrows specifically so that they would whistle as they approached the enemy. You see, the speed of sound much faster than the speed of an arrow. They heard them. They heard them coming. There's something about sound and something about the heart of the people within that town. And then day seven brings something different to the people of Jericho. You see, the marching this time goes on and on and on. Let's read about it. Verse 15. Then the seventh day, they arose early at the dawning of the day. They had to. It takes a while to march. And they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on, the de- on that day, they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban. It is. And all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live. Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban. So that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban. And make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver, gold, articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. The army of Israel, after seven days, is finally given permission to sound the battle cry. And at the sound of this battle cry, the courage of the enemy, which is already almost gone, melts away completely. But it's not the only thing that melts away. The walls fell flat. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, the walls fell beneath themselves before the army of Israel. What that basically means, remember, You not only have walls, you you heard that description, right? You've also got a steep embankment. The walls fell in such a way underneath themselves that it made basically an easy path for the army of Israel to enter within the city. They went straight ahead, the Bible tells us. And the passage then goes on to make it very, very clear that the destruction of Jericho was swift and complete. A question for you is, was it too much? It wasn't just the valiant soldiers of Jericho that died, right? Young and old, men and women, even livestock. See, books have been written, and when I mean books, I'm talking about books that, that do not speak glowingly of God's people nor God in the Old Testament account. Books have been written about the wars of the Old Testament, the devastation caused by the people of God. What these books, though, oftentimes do not include is some of the following. Why don't you keep a finger there in Joshua 6. We're going to come back to it. And everywhere else we're going to go, we'll be pretty close. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. 
be just a few pages over. We're going to look at verse 4. This is the voice of the Lord speaking. This is what it says. Speaking to the people of Israel, do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, meaning the people, the Canaanites in the promised land. Do not say in your heart because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It wasn't the righteousness of Israel that took them into the promised land as conquerors. It was the wickedness of the inhabitants that brought about the judgment of the Lord. Speaking of judgment, I want you to turn to the next book after Joshua, two judges. Judges chapter 1. I'm going to read for you verse 7. As you're turning there... Uh, let you know what's going on here. This is, this is after the death of Joshua. Joshua's gone. The, 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 um, the taking of the promised land, which they never really completed completely. Um, God was a little frustrated with them over that. But Joshua's gone. And now a couple of the tribes of Israel continue the conquest. And, and, and they, they take out this, this king guy named Adonai Bezek. And the, the, it gives us a little bit of details about this fella. He was just a peach of a guy, let me tell you. Verse 7, Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. You catch what, what our fella did here? He was one of the kings. You've you got to remember, the Canaanites, although they would somewhat unite to try to withstand Israel, they didn't like each other that much. And this Adonai Bezak, he had conquered 70 kings, and instead of killing them, he cuts off their big toes and their thumbs and makes them crawl around underneath his banquet table in his banquet hall, eating the scraps on the floor. What a nice fella. What a Good, good guy. All right, just another example of these wonderful people in Canaan. Uh, why don't you turn over to Numbers chapter 25. Interestingly enough, this is one of the examples that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What takes place here? Numbers 25, the first three verses. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to, sac to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. This is an example used by Paul of what not to do, okay? Now the reason Israel fell that day, and they were punished, God brought judgment, and a lot of people died. The reason they fell, because, besides their own stupidity, was the Canaanites, who, who invited the Israelites to come play with their daughters. You see, worship of false gods always included sexual immorality. 
And this is something that would be a thorn, a continual thorn in the side of Israel for centuries to come. Something else about these Canaanites. They had another god that they worshipped of the god. I think worshipped the Baals, but they also worshipped God that had the name Moloch. And this god, they sacrificed their own children to. So, we're not talking about good people here. All of this was detestable to God. When it comes to questions like these, the real question isn't why God, why does God destroy wicked people? You know what the real question is? Why does he allow any of us to live? That's the real question. So we venture back to Israel by the end of the day, they have great reason to give thanks after the battle has come to a close. The first battle for the promised land was won overwhelmingly with the shout and marching given at the command of the Lord. It was the Lord's victory. There's another story of hope, though, found within this account. And we've seen it kind of painted out here a little bit. Told you about Rahab weeks, the months before, and what she did for two messengers, two spies from Israel. We see a little bit mentioned of her here. Now we get a little more detail beginning verse 22 of Joshua 6. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all that she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. We finally get the conclusion to Rahab's story here. (laughs) And in the midst of all of this destruction, we see a glimpse of salvation and redemption. You see, as Rahab and her father and mother and brothers, sisters, I'm guessing, as they, as they came out, saved from what would be the ruins of Jericho, it doesn't say they went into the camp of Israel. It says they were outside the camp of Israel. But that would change one day. I mean, that's salvation, but redemption would come. And one day they would be within the camp of Israel. As a matter of fact, Rahab would marry an Israelite. And an Israelite, not just from any tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, an Israelite from the tribe of Judah. And guess what happens next? She becomes the great-grandmother of a guy named Boaz. And then David comes couple generations later and guess who comes later did you know something when you read through the genealogy of Jesus Christ on his earthly side you know whose name you find Rahab 
an incredible account of salvation and redemption. You see, Rahab's story in life changed drastically. And at the core of her transformation, I'm guessing, was a very, very thankful heart. Brothers and sisters, some things never change. The core of our faith, and we've talked about this a lot, many, many times when you take faith and you put it into a biblical context, meaning you put it into the Bible, where you read faith in the Bible. And what you will find is you can take that word faith out most of the time and replace it with the word trust. Because of the thankfulness within the heart of Rahab, she grew faith in the God of Israel. She trusted the God of Israel and it changed her life some things never change the core of our faith the core of our trust is grounded in thankfulness for what God has done for us how thankful are we brothers and sisters guess what there is another day of destruction coming and unfortunately many who are in the world have no idea they don't recognize it They won't give it its due. They cannot accept it. But that does not change the fact that it's coming. When Christ Jesus returns into this world, he will not come and be laid in a manger. The next time he comes physically into this world, he will come in the way of a judge and a conqueror. And the courage of the people of this world will melt. The day is coming are we prepared for that day are you prepared for that day are we seeing to it that others are prepared for that day you know one little detail that we find earlier in Joshua about the about the account, the story of Rahab. When those spies that she was hiding in her home left, before they left, they told her this. They said, look, you bring in your family to this house. If they're not in your house, hey, their blood's on your hands, not ours. You get them in your house. Now, here's the other thing. Outside your window, you hang a scarlet cord. And every one of our soldiers, our warriors will know, don't touch anyone in that home. It's just absolutely amazing how how the Bible, just, it just, how you see pictures of things done and then it happens later, again, again. And I know where your mind's going, it's probably going to later, like, like after this took place, but it happened before is the one I'm referring to. And, and, Moms and dads of this crew of Israel would understand because it happened in Egypt. And there was another destroyer that came. And the only thing standing between that destroyer and the lives of the firstborn in those homes was the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and the sides of the door of those homes. Nothing else was going to stop the destroyer. There's no power on earth 
that was going to stop the destroyer besides that blood. And then you have Rahab saved by a red of all colors cord hanging from her window. And then we fast forward to the day of judgment coming into this world. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, the only thing that will save us that day is the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb. 